If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, I'll be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 9. And so we'll be in Acts, chapter 9, and I'll be reading the first 19 verses. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, greetings from the saints down the road at Trinity. It's a blessing to be with you today. And uh, I am privileged to call both your current pastor and your uh, retired former pastor, friends. Um, For many years, I lived near Bill Harrell in West Kent, just down the street. I I would see him walking his dog, and we would talk. But then he retired, so I moved to Larchmont, and now I'm just a couple blocks away from Michael Tan, and I see him driving around town, and so it's, it's good that way. I like to stay close to, you know, the senior pastor, uh, here at uh, Emmanuel, um, very thankful to be with you, and very thankful to be uh, given the opportunity to speak tonight about God's word. And hopefully, uh, there is well, we know there's always great value for us in God's word. And this evening, we're looking at a really famous passage 
in the, in the book of Acts. And to orient us to it, because I know you've, you guys have been um, elsewhere in your sermon series recently, just a refresher, you know, the book of Acts begins with Jesus leaving, uh, ascending into heaven, and telling his disciples that he is going to send them out as witnesses, as his witnesses to uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and that he's going to give them his spirit, his Holy Spirit, to do the work. And as the book of Acts unfolds, we see this mission working itself out in some pretty surprising ways, but there, there was no more surprising turn of events than what we encounter in Acts chapter 9. Because Jesus, in this passage, confronts, changes, and then empowers the greatest enemy of the early church. Saul was a dangerous man. Uh, or if we are to recognize, rightly, the greatest enemy is, the, is Satan himself, then we can call Saul the greatest soldier of the enemy. And Jesus takes him and turns around and then entrusts to him a, a great mission. It's shocking. Now, many of us are very familiar with this story, and so the, the shock of that can, can wear off, and that's fine. That's understandable. But we're going to explore this passage today, and I want us to reflect on how Jesus might be doing something similar among us and in our hearts to what we see him doing with Saul. You know, I invite you to ask the question, how is Jesus confronting you? And how is Jesus changing you? And how is Jesus empowering you? Because that's what I think this text um, is inviting us to reflect on today. Yes, there are the extraordinary events of Saul's coming to faith, and those are exciting and important for us to look at. But for many of us, that's not how our story of faith has gone. And so I want us to look past the extraordinary or past what perhaps is unique to Saul and see the extraordinary way that Jesus is committed to working in each of us. And so those are, those are the three points I want to look at tonight. How, how is Jesus confronting us? How is Jesus changing us? And how is Jesus empowering us? Now, as we look at this passage, we are reminded that Saul is a dangerous man. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 9 says he is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And uh, in the, in, back in chapter 8, at the beginning of chapter 8, Stephen has just been killed for his testimony of faith. And we're told Saul approved of his murder. And we're told that Saul, in chapter 8, is going house to house in Jerusalem, dragging off men and women to prison for following Jesus. And as a result of that persecution, what happened? Well, a lot of the 
believers in Jerusalem scattered. They, they left Jerusalem. And Jesus used that, used that scattering to then move, uh, move by his spirit out away from the, the traditionally Jewish areas. And you see in chapter 8, Philip goes and shares the gospel with Samaritans. And then we see the Holy Spirit come even to the Samaritans. And the disciples are shocked by this, but they're like, okay, this is what the Spirit's doing. And then Philip gets whisked away. He meets an Ethiopian uh, eunuch, uh, which would have been, a, he was actually a very, in a very high status position, but he was seeking God. He was reading the scroll of Isaiah, and, and, he, and he tells Philip, how, how can I understand this if somebody doesn't explain it to him? But he's seeking the Lord, and Isaiah uh, in the passage that he's reading in Isaiah points very explicitly to Jesus. It says, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? And, you know, this Ethiopian guy is very confused by this, but Philip shares the gospel with him and baptizes him. And so we see some very surprising developments in the spread of God's kingdom, in part as a direct result of this persecution that's going on in Jerusalem. That doesn't mean that the persecution is a good thing. And, uh, but one of the things we see now in chapter 9 is that there are believers, or at least Saul believes that there are followers of the way up in Damascus. Damascus is just north of uh, Galilee in modern-day Syria. So it's outside of traditional Jewish territories, but, you know, there would presumably have been a large population, Jewish population there. In fact, the text seems to suggest there are multiple synagogues in that area. And Paul, sorry, Saul, same guy, but this te- at this point, you know, it's interesting. Uh, there, there are lots of people in the Bible whose names are really deliberately changed and you think it's very significant. That's not the case with Saul. He's got a a Hebrew name, Saul, and he's got a a Greek Roman name, Paul. And uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he calls him Saul for a while. And then in a few chapters, he just says, Saul, who was also called Paul, and then calls him Paul the rest of the way. So if you ever wondered about that, I wish there was a little bit more there, but that's what we get. So Saul... He, he, th- he seems to think that there's, there's reason to go to Damascus. So he, what has he done? He's gone to the high priest. He's asked for letters to the synagogues that if he finds anyone belonging to the way, men or women, and in, in he's, not, he's not messing around. He, men or women, he's going to drag back to the high priest that they can throw him in prison in Jerusalem. Now, what we see and, and we need to recognize to appreciate fully what Jesus does here is just how dangerous Saul, Saul is to the church. I mean, he is as opposed to the church as one can be, as antagonistic as one can be. But despite that, we know from, from all his letters that his motivation was the purity of God's people. He thought he was honoring the Lord in his religious fervency. He, he thought he was serving the Lord. And, and I think this is important for us to pause and reflect on, that sometimes 
our, our own religious fervency can, can lead us to go after our own agendas thinking we are serving the Lord. Uh, for Saul, it, it is a moral and religious purity, an understanding of the Bible. I mean, he knows his Hebrew scriptures inside and out, and there is no place, there is no category for Jesus in his understanding of the scriptures. And so he thinks that all these people who are saying Jesus is the fulfillment to passages like the one I read in Isaiah, those people are dangerous. Those people are heretics, in fact. That's what he believes. He believes they're dishonoring the Lord. And, and we, we should be mindful of the fact that we, very, we are capable of, of a similar sort of delusion. Now, when I first came to Virginia, I encountered an, an older minister who was known for his uh, fervency, his commitment to the purity of the church, the purity of the Westminster Confession, his spiritual rigor and discipline. Um, and he, you know, a, a very godly, righteous man, uh, but was not known for his gentleness, was not known for his mercy. Or, or, or his grace, until many years into his ministry. And, of course, he thought he was serving the Lord rightly for all those other years of ministry. Uh, but, in important ways, he came to see that he was in opposition to Jesus. And, you know, he, I talked to him recently about this, because I... I, I call I consider him a, a good friend at this point, and and uh, and I'm I'm sure some of you know him, uh, but he he told me that the Lord had been working in his heart for a number of years, and then finally he he found himself in the hospital, uh, on what he thought was his deathbed, and he felt great guilt, great guilt for all his sin, and as he wrestled with God, he realized that. The God that he had constructed was not a God of grace, which is, of course, not the God that we encounter in the Bible. And he wrestled with God there, and he recognized that, that mercy and grace and forgiveness, those were, those were things he knew about, that they, they were not things he was experiencing of God. And he came to this great sense of peace, and he told me, he was ready to go be with the Lord. And then he heard the doctor say, all right, I think we got him. And he had to come back. And he had to wrestle with living differently. And by God's grace, he, I, he has. And I'd say he's one of the most fervent, kind of like what we see with Saul uh, in his trajectory. He's become one of uh, the most ardent uh, champions of grace in, in my life. And I'm very thankful for him. And, you know, there, there are so many good things that can consume us that leave little space for Jesus in our lives. And that's why it's so important for Jesus to confront us, to confront, to confront the nature of our hearts, to confront the things that, that are blinding us to him. You know, career is a big one. Uh, politics can be a big one. 
family, education. But living for anything, even good things, other than Jesus, ultimately puts us like Saul in opposition to Jesus. Now, Jesus confronts Saul on the road to Damascus with a very bright light. And the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's repeating the name, which shows his emphasis. He's serious. But notice how Jesus so closely identifies with his church and with his followers. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? And I think that's such a beautiful, that's such a beautiful um, thing for us to remember as the church, how closely Jesus identifies with us. That when we do suffer persecution, and you know, it, the, the church in Norfolk is, is blessed to not be enduring the sort of persecution that these believers were enduring, or that many of our brothers and sisters across the world do endure. But in times of persecution, we could take great comfort knowing that Jesus identifies with us in that persecution, that he sees us and loves us in it. And I promise you, Saul did not think he was persecuting Jesus. Why do I, why do I think that? Well, one, I mean, he thought he was going after wayward believers, not Jesus. But two, um, he thought Jesus was dead. He was sure Jesus was dead. Uh, he, Jesus was crucified. And he was convinced that all this talk about Jesus being alive was a lie, was make-believe, was, was these heretics. But so for Jesus to confront Saul meant that Jesus was alive and that Jesus had the power of God because God is the only one with power to bring people back to life. And that meant all of a sudden for Saul, he had to come reckon with the truth that he was persecuting people who actually were following the truth who actually were following the Lord, that he was the one in opposition to the Lord. Now, we don't know how quickly Saul made these connections. As you see if, um, in verse 8, he, he rose from the ground. Although his eyes were open, he, he saw nothing. He's led by the hand, brought into Damascus, and for three days he's without sight and neither ate nor drank. So Jesus, Jesus is going to use Saul. First, he wants, Saul needs to think about it. But, you know, Saul's been metaphorically blind to the truth about Jesus because of his zealous devotion to his understanding of God. And it is our misshapen and mistaken understanding of God that so often keeps us from seeing what Jesus is doing in the world and is doing in us. And we need him to confront and to challenge our false notions. We need to see and encounter the real Jesus in order to find hope in him. And that's exactly what's happened to Saul. And so he's been confronted by Jesus. How does Jesus then uh, change Saul? And how does Jesus change us? Well, so this is a particularly extreme story of conversion, isn't it? Uh, Jesus has right, taken the greatest enemy of the church and converted him in three days and we you know he recently brought this Ethiopian eunuch to faith 
But that was a guy who was searching, you know, and then the Samaritans. I mean, they sort of knew some of the things they should know. They, they weren't as hostile. as Saul's really in opposition. And Jesus just takes him and turns him. And, you know, the world made sense to Saul, and then Jesus changed his entire understanding of the world. And, and he did that through his mercy. And we see that Saul comes out the other side. We're going to see that he comes out the other side as someone who suddenly is able to understand the scriptures in this uniquely powerful way that the Lord's going to use. But this is an extraordinary conversion. And stories of extraordinary conversion like this are really exciting and wonderful. But sometimes as Christians, uh, if, this isn't, if we don't have a story like this, um, we, we can maybe feel bad about our, our story or sometimes we can get too caught up in like the sensational stories of ex- extraordinary con- conversion and miss the normal work of the spirit almost like uh, we like kind of the more soap opera parts of it but like we miss the, the real beauty of what Jesus is doing that happens as much in a, a child that grows up in the church and never knows a day when Jesus is not his or her Lord and Savior, you know, that, that this, this, Jesus is doing the same beautiful things in that child and in that heart that he's doing in Saul here. He's just doing it in a, over a different time period, different way. You know, uh, my parents came to faith through extraordinary conversion, actually, when I was six. Uh, neither of them were living as Christians, and they both really, the Lord brought them both to the end of themselves around a similar time. And... Um, so seeing the Lord change them was a large part of my story. But, you know, six years old, I, you know, we, they started taking my brother and me to church. And they started teaching us the gospel. And we participated in the church. And we came to understand Jesus' love for us, his mercy towards us. And you know, we didn't have these extraordinary stories. Um, but we, we grew up in this church that had these really, praise the Lord, had a lot of people coming with extraordinary stories and those were being celebrated. And sometimes I felt like my story didn't fit. I would say my story was a little bit more like when you're on a road trip and uh, you, you see a mountain in the distance. And you can't quite remember, you can't quite pinpoint when you started seeing that mountain. You're just aware it, it's there. And the more you keep driving, the closer and the clearer and the bigger it gets. And, and for me, I, I, as many people experience, I, I couldn't tell you a, a specific day or specific time. I just was true, and I understood it that way. But I understand that's a work of the Spirit in me as much as it was a work of the Spirit in my parents who had this extraordinary conversion, or in Saul. And, you know... We love the, the story of the conversion of Saul, and rightly so, but we mustn't forget that it's, it's not the only way God works, or even the usual way God works. Of, of all the people in the New Testament who come to faith, Saul's is one of the most extraordinary stories. Um, and if we see anything in the book of Acts, it's that Jesus reaches people in all sorts of ways. So then... What should we apply to, our, to ourselves from this? We've we got to be careful about that. What can we see in Saul's conversion? And, and I want you to observe in the, in the second paragraph of this chapter, at least in the way the ESV is formatted, that the focus turns to a disciple named Ananias. 
He's a guy that we don't hear about elsewhere in the scriptures, but we, we encounter him here. And even in this extreme situation where Jesus has communicated directly with Saul on the road to Damascus, he's quick to connect Saul to the rest of his followers, to the church. And now the followers, they aren't exactly enthusiastic about it, if we're being honest. We'll see. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep reading a little bit just to, uh, in, in a bit. But Ananias isn't the only one who's got concerns. I love Ananias' boldness in telling Jesus, I don't know about this guy, Jesus. He's, he's kind of dangerous. Uh, do you see how he says that in verse 13? Lord, I've heard from many about this man. Much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. He's got a th- you, you can see he's basically just trying, are you sure about this, Jesus? Uh, and Jesus' response instructs us in two ways. One, we should expect him to change others as they come to faith. We should have that expectation. And, and too often times, the church has the expectation that people can't be changed by Jesus. And we need, we need to see that that is a holdover of our, our, the old self, the old way of understanding. The, the powers, in the powers of this world, yeah, people don't change. Right? People don't really change. But... With the Holy Spirit, people do change. And not only should we expect him to change other people, but we should expect him to change us. Uh, you know, I, I said er, earlier, we, we need to see and encounter the real Jesus to clear up our false understandings. And, and so how does that happen? In this passage, we see that Jesus uses one of his followers to minister to Saul and show him the truth. Ananias gets to do the work of Jesus of helping Saul understand what his new identity is, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be reborn in the Spirit. And notice how doing the work of the gospel changes Ananias too. It moves him from from fear to love. In verse 17, he calls Saul brother. And that's, Jesus changing Saul and changing Ananias. When Saul's baptized, he takes on the identity of Christ. He becomes a brother to Ananias. He becomes a son of God. He experiences the forgiveness offered by Jesus who died on the cross for him. And the healing that comes through the power of Jesus in his resurrection. And that's the change that all who profess Jesus as Lord encounter in their lives and can be assured of no matter what your story of faith looks like what your journey no matter what the peaks and the valleys are and 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 so we've seen how Jesus uh, confronts our opposition to him and shows us our sin we've talked a little bit about how Jesus changes us through faith to reconcile us to himself and to his family the church and I want to I keep reading in this passage a little bit more to look finally at the work Jesus has for us when we enter into the faith. If we pick up there in 19b, he's with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And, and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? 
But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now one of the verses I didn't mention earlier in this passage was verses 15 and 16. And Jesus in that section assures Ananias, Saul will suffer for my name. But he's not saying that in a threatening way. He's saying that in the way of, don't worry, he's going to be one of us. He too will bear reproach for my name. And what we immediately see happening in Damascus is Jesus' words coming true. Saul has had a light switch flip for him. I mean, his mastery of the scriptures is greater than, than any of us. And he just had the wrong lens. He was looking at it wrongly. And once he understood, they all pointed to Jesus. And, you know, presumably with a few days spent with the disciples, suddenly he is a force to be reckoned with in the synagogue. None of them can dispute him. He, they just can't even argue with him. So they plot to kill him, right? The same thing they did to Jesus. Well, we can't dispute the truth, so let's just kill him because it's inconvenient. And... You know, Saul even calls Jesus the son of God. And that's the very thing they stoned Stephen for. Now, Saul is suffering for the name of Jesus. There are plots to kill him. He has to flee the city. What has Jesus done to Saul? He's empowered him. He's empowered him to serve his purposes. I was listening to a podcast a couple weeks ago uh, that was lamenting the overuse of the word empowerment. So, of course, I put it into my sermon. Uh, they actually made a really good point. They say people love to talk about empowerment and say, oh, we should empower these people to do such and such. But no one actually wants to empower people because to empower people means to give them your power. And people naturally want to hold on to their power, but not Jesus. Jesus has given his power away to the church. Jesus ascended heaven and sent us his spirit. He has empowered us to do his work. That is our mission. And that's the whole point of Acts. Jesus wants us to be his witnesses throughout the world. He wants us to utilize the power of the Holy Spirit that he's given us in order to accomplish the advancement of his kingdom. Now, some commentators argue about this passage, a silly argument, whether this story is Saul's conversion or Saul's commissioning. It's a silly argument because it's clearly both. Uh, Because anyone who is converted, who is brought into the household of God, is also commissioned to be a witness for the kingdom. Now, when Jesus calls us to saving faith, he gives us a new purpose, to be his instruments, to carry forth his name into every corner of the earth. And Saul is extraordinary. We've talked about that. But Jesus, Jesus, notice, he, he took this enemy of the kingdom and he didn't turn around and punish him. He didn't execute him. He gave Saul a new life, a new purpose, a new identity, and he sent him out in power on behalf of the kingdom. Let's look at how this, uh, this passage ends 
It continues, uh, verse 26 to 31, and then we'll stop. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So that last verse, verse 31, it wraps up a big section in the book of Acts. Uh, Remember when, you know, Acts was first written down, there weren't chapter numbers or verse numbers, and and Luke very clearly signals, this is the end of a section with that, uh, you know, statement, the, the summary statement in verse 31. But we notice the, the movement of the church out from Jerusalem into Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and it says the church was at peace, was being built up, but there's something notably missing from the mission of the church in this verse, and that's probably why there's another 20-so chapters of Acts, because he, Jesus promised to send them out to the ends of the earth, send his witnesses out to the end of the earth, and that's exactly what we'll begin to see if you, if you follow on in the ministry of Saul, also called Paul, then the church will include people who they didn't expect it to. And I think that's one of the big things that we need to see in this passage, is that the power of Jesus in the church is going to mean that he brings people into the church we don't expect him to. And maybe who we don't want him to. And that's what, you know, we see the disciples wrestling with that, with Saul. They hate this guy, and understandably so. And maybe they don't hate him, but they certainly don't like him. And they don't believe that he was a disciple. It says that explicitly in verse 26. They don't believe he's a disciple. Uh, Because he was someone who had made up his mind about Jesus. And he was someone they were afraid of, that they didn't, want to be they couldn't trust but when Jesus brings people to faith he brings them into the family into the into the household of God Uh, regardless of what they've done or what they look like uh, what they what they've believed previously and you know a, a great a great example of this in kind of more modern times uh came with a man named Chuck Colson. Some of you may remember that Chuck Colson was very prominent in the Richard Nixon administration. And he was known as Nixon's hitman, uh, Nixon's evil genius. He was ruthless. If you were an enemy, uh, if if Nixon considered you an enemy, and he had a lot of enemies, uh, you know, Chuck Colson was your worst nightmare. And Steve Smallman was a, was a PCA pastor for many years in Northern Virginia at McLean Press. And he tells in, in one of his books about 
reading about Chuck Colson's conversion. And he, I mean, he sounds like the disciples when they find out Saul came to faith. He, he was like, I, I was very skeptical. I did not believe this could be true, but I kept, I kept reading, I kept reading. And, and, and Steve said that in, he was reading an article in the Washington Post, a lengthy uh, interview with Chuck Colson, where Chuck Colson described his born-again experience like this, my whole view of the world has changed, and particularly the realization that Washington is not the center of true power. There are other things more important and significant. And Smallman says that changed his understanding of of Chuck Colson. He, He said that statement led him to believe Chuck Colson really had been changed. And and I thought, found that surprising, but here's why Smallman said that. It's because he didn't focus on an experience or on feelings, but on a new way of looking at life. That the whole way he saw life had been changed. Now, of course there were feelings and there was experience, but that's not what he focused on. That was, it was that he saw that Washington, that, that politics, this thing that he had been living for, it would never satisfy him. And only in Jesus could he find rest for his soul, for his soul that was so, that was, that was longing for its maker, for his creator. Now, if you aren't a follower of Jesus coming out on a Sunday night, uh, the second worship service of the day, I'm glad you're here with us. And, and, and I think you or, or anyone that we might encounter who does not yet know Jesus needs to, needs to, see in, in Saul's story is that Jesus may be calling you or calling them just like he's calling Saul. That the, that the things that so many people are living for are not the true center of power. They don't actually have power to deliver on all the promises they make. And there are other things more important, more significant, namely relationship with Jesus. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus doesn't want to punish you. He doesn't want to scold you. He wants to welcome you into his family. He wants to welcome you back with open arms. He loves you. And once you put your faith and trust in him, you'll find he's eager to empower you with purpose for his kingdom. He's got work to do. He's got plenty of work to do. There's no shortage of work in the kingdom. In fact, we're called, right, for the Lord to send out more laborers. We need more laborers in the harvest. And so, for those of us who are followers of Jesus and we're here tonight, you know, perhaps this is an opportunity for us to re-examine our priorities. What, what have you allowed to become more important to you than Jesus? Maybe even in the last week. What do you, why are you resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in you? And you know, how can you engage more deeply in the mission of the church? And that doesn't mean like, you know, showing up to more events at the church, right? That means hospitality. That means seeing the people the Lord has placed around you as, as he sees them and entering into relationship and sharing of the, the hope that you found, just as we see Saul doing. He can't help but immediately turn around and tell you, guys, I was wrong. I was wrong about all this. And, of course, all these things, they begin and end with experiencing the power and presence of Jesus. 
Remember that the Lord of heaven and earth sees the rebellion in your hearts. He sees the disloyalty, the false loves, the ways you've, you've, you've twisted. Because our hearts can't help in, in their sinful nature to, to twist his good things. Right? He sees all that and he loves you still. And in fact, he knew all that when he went to the cross for you. And he, that's why he went to the cross for you, to free you from that oppression, from the oppression of the lies of this world, so that like Saul, you might truly see him, not just as holy and righteous, though he is those things, but as tender and loving too. Friends, he does not treat us as our sins deserve, and that's good news. He treats us as precious loved ones, precious, dear to him, and that's good news worth sharing. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for the love you've shown us in Jesus. We praise you that in him we now can call you Father, that we experience in him your great love for us, and that through him we've been granted the power of the Holy Spirit to share that love with this world, that uh, like us, before your spirit got a hold of our hearts, is, is in rebellion against you. But help us, Father, to be salt and light in this world, to bear witness to the, to the power of Jesus that we have encountered in our lives, and help us to do all this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.